It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Digby Jones, former Director General of the Confederation of British Industry, the CBI, and former UK Trade Minister. On this programme, we're talking business and we're preparing for Brexit. This time... I'm going to take you on a journey around our green and pleasant land, because today it really is all about our beautiful countryside. We're talking about the food that we grow, the food we produce, and how those in this huge UK industry are grappling with changes, how they label their produce, how they'll recruit their workers, how they'll fund their production. And we're going to be discussing fishing off our coast in UK waters. That, of course, has been a huge sticking point in the negotiations at the end of transition. We've got a hugely rich and important food sector. It contributes £28 to the UK economy. It employs 106,000 EU workers, a quarter of the whole workforce actually comes from the EU. And at the same time, if you add up all the manufacturing of food in Britain, it dwarfs aerospace and automotive put together. Food accounts for 105 billion, about 20% of total UK manufacturing. And of course, it does rely on those EU workers. They make up a quarter of the food and drink workforce, so many of them working on agricultural farms and in food manufacturing processes. So how will growing and producing what we eat and importing what we can't change after Brexit? And what are our businesses going to do to prepare? Coming up, we'll visit Brecon in Wales, where a hill farmer has been breeding sheep for generations. How will the end of the common agricultural policy affect him? We're going to visit the North Yorkshire coast and speak to a fisherman there. He too has had the business in the family blood for generations. What does he see changing? What does he want at the end of transition? And we'll visit the fields of Kent. We'll hear from a salad grower who relies so heavily on those EU workers coming in. What is his workforce going to look like going forward? Welcome to Preparing for Brexit with me, Digby Jones, here on Times Radio. Now joining me throughout today's programme is Ian Wright. He's the Chief Executive of the Food and Drink Federation. And when I was at the CBI, they were members of my organisation and I realised just how important they as a federation are and how important their sector is. Ian, you're welcome. Hello. Hello, Digby. Very nice to be here. Thanks for having coming on board. Now, what does the UK food and drink sector look like? Well, it's divided really into 
three or four parts. So you've got uh, growers and farmers who produce the raw materials. Then you have ourselves, the manufacturers and also importers of food from uh, Europe and elsewhere. And then the retail sector, which is where if you really ask most members of the public, name a food company, they'd probably say to you the name of a supermarket. And of course, they do make food uh, for their own brands. But the actual manufacturing sector, which I represent, is the largest manufacturing industry in the country. It's bigger than aerospace and automotive combined. And we employ about half a million people in factories which are completely spread across the uh, whole of our uh, United Kingdom, with one in literally one with more than 50 people in every parliamentary constituency. So unlike automotive and aerospace, which are very clumped in regions, we're in every part of the country. So so every single MP should think, uh, I, I have this on my radar screen. They certainly should, yeah. Yeah. And and I think uh, I'm right in saying that it, 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 95% of all the food and drink manufacturers are small businesses, aren't they? They're, they're, that's, you know, they're st- that's right. We have, we have about 8,000 firms that the Office of National Statistics records. My suspicion is there are many more than that, where they're one person who may only do this part time. And it's important to remember that every food business starts either on somebody's kitchen table or uh, on a farm because that they, people produce the, the products. They either are brilliant cooks and they have an idea that they're going to sell outside their own home or they're farmers and they want to do something new with their crops. So they all start small and then they grow. And of course, we do have members as large as businesses like Nestle, Unilever and Coca-Cola, which are some of the world's biggest global businesses. So you go from the literal cottage industry right the way up to the big multinational. Very, very important. Um, In just a few weeks' time, transition comes to an end. Uh, Britain is off ploughing her own furrow in the global economy. Uh, What what does that look like? I mean, in in what way would someone listening to this think, yep, I can see it's going to change? Well, at the moment, we're not entirely sure how it's going to change, as you know, because the negotiations continue. And certainly we're thinking of this in in a way that I suspect others wouldn't entirely uh, recognise. So we're seeing this in four parts. There's EU to UK. That's mostly imports of ingredients for uh, for food products which are put together in the UK. Uh, Though There are a number of uh, full finished goods like uh, parmesan cheese or feta cheese or uh, or greek yogurt uh, then we think of uk to eu where we export food actually we're not really very successful exporters as a nation and our biggest uh, food export indeed our biggest export by value is scotch whiskey uh, and then we're also thinking of the specific and really very concerning problems about northern ireland because northern ireland is going to have this unique status where it's essentially in the United Kingdom, but also in the EU. And so trade with Northern Ireland, particularly from uh, Ken Ryan at Stranraer, where the the major ferry port is for Northern Ireland, from uh, Ken Ryan to Belfast, is going to be very crucial. And we still don't know, with only 15, 16 days to go, working days to go, we still don't know what the rules are going to be. Um, And that is ridiculous. And if the if there is no deal or if there's a deal, some things will change, won't they? Regardless everything of whether will a... change. 
everything will change on each of those routes. So, so lots of change. So they they have to uh, people who are moving goods on either way either way into the mainland EU or to the Republic of Ireland have to fill in uh, customs declarations. They have to have export health certificates for animal products. They have to get vets checks. Um, and so yes, there are very major issues uh, on all of those routes that I just described. Yeah. Well, let's uh, together, let's uh, start our journey, shall we, around the country. And let's go up to uh, Thirsk in North Yorkshire uh, to a family run business. Uh, it produces artisan cheese and Caroline Bell uh, runs Shepherd's Purse Cheese with her sister. Caroline, hello. Welcome. Hello. Hi. Nice to be here. Yeah, well, thank you for giving me some time. Uh, tell me about your business. How did it come about? Uh, so my mum founded the business in the late 1980s. So we were, we were before that a mixed arable farm. And as a diversification project, mum kind of discovered a passion and talent for cheese making with alternate milk at the start, actually. So we used sheep's milk um, as an alternate for those that were, were intolerant to cow's milk. As we've grown, um, she found she was a pretty talented cheesemaker, won lots of international awards, and we added cow's milk to our artisan range and later water buffalo milk as well. I think you're being modest, aren't you? Didn't you win an award that put you in the top 15 in the world? Ah, uh, yes, yes. Uh, Harrogate Blue, one of our cheeses, um, yeah, was uh, deemed a top, top 11 in the end, but yes. 11? Yeah, top 11 in, in the uh, world. Yeah. I'm, I'm talking. I'm talking to a world champion. Marvelous. <laughs> the, uh, and the 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 sheep that from which you make the uh, cheese, the, the sheep milk. Do you, do you own the animals yourself, or do you get the milk in? We did at the beginning, and we and we built the flock to around 400. But as we grew as a company and began working with satellite farms, we developed a process for working with 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 our group of farmers. And that's kind of enabled us to grow over the years. So we work in partnership with farmers now. We focus on the cheese making and they focus on producing excellent milk. Yeah. And, the, and, and stick to your knitting and do what you do well. Quite right. And, yeah. and, and, where do you, and where do you sell the cheese to? Do you retail it or do you sell it off to other places? Yeah, so we have a mix of wholesale and multiple retail into farm shops and delis and then into the multiple retailers in the UK and, uh, and, uh, and obviously a certain amount of export as well. Yeah, and the, and the export will either go from you or go through places like the supermarkets or whatever and, and out into the EU. No, we don't directly export ourselves. Exactly, we use um, partners who consolidate and then and then export and be that uh, a multiple retailer or a or an exporter themselves. But it comes back to you to get that product ready for that chain of export. Um, I have in mind particularly. Uh, labeling and because it's of animal origin you've got certificates that you have to comply with haven't you yes yeah, so we had some experience with this one working for export for the u.s and it, and it seems like it's going to be a similar process in terms of certification uh, and vet checks and quite an expensive process really for a small amount of our for a small portion of our business it sounds as if we're going to need to have a, a vet visit once a month to create um the to certify us as uh, for our products of animal origin and then there's a lot of uncertainty actually about about the process next depending on which yeah. route it, it goes and travels and so it, 
and and so the, the the vet certificate have you had to do that while we've been in the eu or is that something that you're gonna to have to no. do when we're outside yeah yeah, yeah. no so that, it's not something yeah so this is a direct consequence of leaving the eu is you've got to start spending your money on vet certificates that you didn't have to do before Absolutely. And, and I think yeah. I echo the point around Northern Ireland being an issue as well, that it will be essentially the same for there. So we're having to prep um, to be able to yeah. access markets that have just and, been taken for granted. Um, and, and yeah, that's a good point. How, how, how much how much a month do you have to pay? Will you have to pay on vets then? I think it's looking at, at, at around £500 for the first visit. And then I, I, I think around that each. I think around that each month once you once you factored it in. Although we're not a hundred percent sure. I think we've managed to access the vet to kind of try and get ahead of it a little bit to to, to discover. But there's just so much uncertainty at the moment around the volume yeah. of visits that are going to be needed as well. And if I'm going to risk the wrath of every veterinary surgeon in the country, but um, what will the vet do for his money? Uh, the vet, so what, what they need to do is they come and they're checking the traceability of the, of the origin of the milk. So they're checking our paperwork essentially to make sure that we, uh, I'm guessing, make, make sure that our traceability works at that side of the, of the business. And so presumably for, that... For that, us that... as a business... We have that all in place. I think for the smaller businesses, I think it's 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 going to be about creating paperwork. Yeah. Well, Caroline, I have with me uh, Ian Ian Wright today. He's the chief exec of the Food and Drink Federation. Hello, um, Caroline. Ask away, Caroline. What piece of advice on your labelling and your certificates would you like to uh, uh, seek from him? I guess I think it's 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 at what point should we start in order to get ahead of it? As I said, start with our vet, vet visits and get the certification in place. Um, obviously, it's come at such a bad time of year for all of us in the food industry. Uh, we're chasing our tails, trying desperately to catch up with Christmas. Um, but I, I guess when, when would you recommend us uh, kind of getting kicked off and started? Now, um, I think I I think I I mean, I think there are two issues with the vets um, certificates. One is that the first time you I know you've done this for America and for presumably other rest of the world exports. And the system is pretty much the same. But I do think that it's important that you do it once uh, with with a reasonable runner tip because the paperwork may be unfamiliar and then there's the second question of the uh, availability of vets. And this mm. is going to be a big issue in December. I mean, we, we, we effectively uh, don't know at this stage how many vets will be available. And because we don't know the status of some of the Northern Ireland uh, checks, we don't know how many of them will be needed to do that part of the work as well. And I noticed, I'm, I'm glad you endorsed what I said earlier about Northern Ireland because it is a real problem. And, if, and the, I don't know about you, but the thing that most people I talk to seem to find difficult is that for many, many exporters, nobody ever thought of Northern Ireland as being anything other than the same as Scotland, Wales or, or anywhere else in England. And so to go to a system where you have to treat it as a third country is extremely difficult and 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 surprising so i imagine that that's also a problem yeah i think the other challenge with that is the labeling so uh, it is again at this incredibly busy time of year we're we're having to ensure that the 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 labeling for 
for the export into the EU, and that includes Northern Ireland, is changed over before the 1st of January. Um, again, a, a, a very a challenging thing to to complete in a short what period you, of time. What do you have to change on your labelling, Caroline? Uh, so the health mark, uh, we know at least, has to change from, it can't say UK anymore, it has to say, we have two options, either United Kingdom, but it's a very small uh, space for that, or GB, uh, from, as we understand it at least, maybe Ian can confirm hopefully that that's correct. Are you saying to me that you as a business have got to change all your labels to change it from the words United Kingdom uh, from the words United Kingdom to the words GB? Um, we can we can use United Kingdom. It can't have at the moment the European Health Mark has a UK at the top and then our code and then EC. Our new Health Mark, as we understand it, can't have UK uh, in in that way. It has to say either United Kingdom or GB, as we understand it. You can't make Yeah, that's up, correct. That's correct. And, and, and one of the problems is that the decision to do that came so late that a lot of people had already produced their labels and indeed produced their product and were, it was on its way to Northern Ireland. So if it's already in the market, that's to say basically in Northern Ireland, then you can sell it through. But if you're trying to move it, theoretically, you might be stopped. The, the, if the wrong label's on there. But the government has said uh, that it will do something it's describing as pragmatic enforcement, which effectively mm. means for the first few months waving it through. The other thing, Caroline, I think you'll probably need is a food business operator uh, indication on the product, which which is the, the contact address. Um, mm. But it may be that, that that, again, isn't needed for the first few weeks or months in Northern Ireland. Uh, yeah, I think I think the other thing, the thing that was of concern for many months was that this could take uh, place in in the UK. But I understand we do have a grace period in the UK market, um, and yeah, that is right. confirmed. I hope, yeah. Yeah, that, that's I mean, right. I, yeah. I think the problem here is that that this is it, it's not so much the fact that you've got to change because actually, if you were changing from U, from UK to to GB, almost everybody could do that. The trouble is these decisions are being taken so late. So yes. nobody has the chance to do this. I mean, many products are already en route to Northern Ireland or to Europe. Some product, you know, some products will already be there. And, and so the difficulty of, of doing this is compound. The cost of changing everything is, yeah. is something you can factor in. But doing it so late is something you just can't deal with. Deal with. Well, Caroline, I, I wish you well with this. And uh, you're obviously uh, a neat market. You're obviously a global champion in terms of the quality. And I just hope that these new regulations that you're prepared for, you've done your bit, but I just hope that uh, it doesn't uh, in any way diminish the quality of what you do. Thank you. Yeah, we're working very hard to try and make sure that that doesn't happen and just focus on what we can control. So, yeah. Yeah. And I suppose you've given some work for some designers somewhere anyway. So there's an <laughs> upside for somebody. Indeed. Caroline, Caroline, thank you very much for joining me. So, Ian, you heard that. Is that a story you often hear or is that unusual? No, that's pretty typical. Uh, I think there are the, the two parts there that we were talking to Caroline about. The first is the changes. And yes, the changes are onerous. And yes, they could, they could be expensive. But if you can factor them into your business plan, that's fine. You will work that out. But the fact that all these things are still uncertain and it is so late and the question of whether the vets will be available to do those certificates 
on a regular basis without extra cost or extra time involved, those are all variables that Caroline can't control, as she said, and they all add to the cost and the inefficiency of what is clearly a brilliant business. Yeah. And presumably this applies to all food. I mean, Caroline's dealing with sheep's milk cheese, but uh, a honey producer, uh, a meat producer for export. I mean, there aren't going to be enough vets, are there? Uh, well, that's a big question mark. Um, it is almost certain that the, the number of vets in this country that are available to do this kind of work rather than uh, normal James Herriot type stuff uh, is going to be very restricted. And I know that many organisations under the government's auspices, like the Food Standards Agency, I think even military vets are being pressed into service for what they say is surge capacity. Uh, so they're clearly aware that there is a problem and uh, and the civil servants who manage this have known there's a problem for ages. They haven't been dilatory. They're just waiting for the resolution yeah. of the negotiations. That's the, yeah. that's the difficult thing. In, in this series, I always try to get, get uh, uh, the, the friend of mine uh, to uh, come up with one or two takeaways, you know, one or two things we can hang on to. And Caroline talked about uh, getting new numbers on her labelling. So how would a business listening to this thinking, how do I go about getting the new number from a label? What do they have to do? Well, there's lots and lots of inf very good information on gov.uk. And uh, they're almost all of the different parts of this are very clearly labelled. So one of the interesting uh, things is that they've gone down the route of saying what it does on the tin on the website. So get yourself an Eori number is actually the name of the site which gets you an important export Eori number. So going on gov.uk, the, the information is clear and, the, uh, and it's available really pretty much up to the minute. The trouble is some of it will change if the negotiations go well or badly. You're listening to Preparing for Brexit with me, Digby Jones, here on Times Radio. So let's now go to the Garden of England. Let's go to Kent. Fertile farmland, cultivated countryside, all providing fresh produce, including strawberries that are sent to Wimbledon every year, apple orchards producing a multitude of varieties, and increasingly, of course, very importantly, fine wine, which is now exported not just around the world, but would you believe, back to France as well. So I'm joined from Kent by Nick Otterwell, from LJ Betts, a family farm which grows salad products there. Hi, Nick. Good morning. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me. Now, you have a huge reliance, I think, on, on foreign workers. A lot of them come from the EU. And as with many UK farms, uh, they come. They're, they're not what I think the public think of as just lumpen, uh, uh, unskilled labour. This is skilled work. This is work for which you train them, work where they, uh, they do so much to ensure that the food arrives on our plate or that we earn overseas currency from it. So how many of the people that you employ to pick that, those salad products, how many of them come from outside the UK? Around 99% of our seasonal workforce is EU nationals, not UK workers. Um, wow. Within that, um, we've then got we, we, our business has got around 100 seasonal workers, and then the structure of our business is that we harvest for around six months of the year. Uh, we also uh, bring produce in um, in the six months that we don't harvest, so we can offer work full-time work to around 30 workers, and the 30 workers that are full-time are a little bit 
a few more English people. So around 25-30% of our workforce that we can have a full-time work to is UK residents. Yeah, and, and there was, a, or there is, I think, a, a pick for Britain scheme, isn't there, to try and get more British nationals to work well, the pick, in the industry? The pick, the pick for Britain was rushed in um, when COVID hit. Um, two reasons. One was because people suddenly found themselves with, with time, you know, the, the unfortunate people that, that lost their jobs or were furloughed. Uh, the other thing was that uh, travel from the countries that we tend to use for our seasonal workers became difficult and... Um, the only option really to get people in for the dates that we needed to get them in for was to charter flights, which was extremely expensive. So it was a, it was a sort of a double whammy that ended up with a sort of pick for Britain campaign. Uh, we we tried hard to be involved in that campaign, uh, but you know uh, now that we're at the end of the season and we can debrief, there are a lot of um, harsh realities linked to what happened, not just for our business but across the industry. So the the pick for Britain scheme. You, do you think it's got legs? Well, the harsh reality was that the Pick for Britain workers that came into our business cost us around 60% more than an EU national that's, uh, that we bring in seasonally. That's the harsh reality of it. Yes. So there are lots of political reasons to try and employ British people, uh, and I fully understand that. But we've also got a business to run, and we've got very um, tight supply chain with, with downward pressure from from people like Aldi and Lidl taking market share on the retail sector, that creates a lot of downward pressure on price. The latest DEFRA proposal could come into this season is to have, they've got a third, third, third proposal coming out, which is what George Eustace is banding about right now, which is a third, third pick for Britain workers, a third returnees um, with pre-settled status, which is how we can get our returning workers with skill back, uh, which is the only way we can actually go forward as a business. And a third on the, source scheme which has been a pilot the last two years which is hopefully going to continue so that's, that's that the latest proposal what, what, sorry what but it, um, t- teaching ignoramus like me what's the source scheme so it, it's uh, the seasonal worker scheme which is allowing the home office to create uh, work cards outside of eu countries as we move forward All it's right. been a pilot yeah. scheme for the last two years um this year 2020 we had the, the industry had 10,000. Uh, work cards issued. The industry needs around seventy thousand workers. Wow! Um, <laughs> so it, it's helpful. Um, the pre-settled status that we've uh, managed to, um, to move forward, keeping our keeping our skill and our returnees, um, is helpful. The pick for Britain is how can I put it politely? It's a nice idea. Don't think it works in reality. If I'm being brutally honest, and I think yeah. a lot, there's lots of reasons for that, but. Um, the main reason, I think, is because the work's seasonal. That's the whole. That's the whole reason why seasonal work became migrant work. Uh, if you're living in the southeast of England and you are trying to have any sort of um, quality of life, how can you operate on, on a seasonal doing seasonal work? How, can, how are you going to get a mortgage? How, how are you going to actually provide for your family doing seasonal work? It's not realistic. And yet, it's realistic in Romania. No, it's not realistic in Romania, but the, the people in Romania uh, are, are making decisions with their families to leave their families for six months, go to another country, and what for them is a substantially larger sum of money than they would earn at home, and then go back, and they're affecting their quality of life. So that's why migrant work goes hand-in-hand hand with seasonal work. Let's be real honest about this situation. You know, we live in a, a very developed country, and we have very easy access to food. It's cheap, probably cheaper than it should be. 
And the choice when anybody goes into a retailer about what they would like to put in their basket is huge. And that's very privileged. It's a very privileged society that we live in. And we wouldn't have that without migrant workers. I wouldn't have a business. I wouldn't have a business here without migrant workers. And, so, and have you hel- have you helped those people with their settled status? I mean, have you have you? Yeah, we, sure we've that, administered yeah. the people that are working here. We've administered that. Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and the after transition ends, you know, just now, a few days' time. Um, what one big thing, as we speak today, would you need to make sure that you can carry on? with that relationship with Romania, with that relationship with the skills that you've helped grow in these people and that they actually can continue earning their money. Uh, what one thing yeah. do you need that you haven't got right now? Well, we just need confirmation of this of this source scheme to be stop becoming a pilot scheme, which it has been for the last two years, to become a recognised scheme by the Home Office uh, that's ingrained in you know, law going forward with the Home Office, and we need the figure to be as big as possible. Not not yeah. ten thousand, but probably forty or fifty thousand. And, um, and 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 do you, do you think do you think that's going to happen? And do you think it's going to happen quickly? I mean, that's the other point. I think I think it's going to continue, but that's not been confirmed yet. If it doesn't continue, that is a disaster. I think you know, you talk about the strawberries getting picked for Wimbledon. Uh, I've just been on the, I've just been on the meeting with the guy that runs that business. And, you know, he's constantly looking at for robotics to, as a way forward. And we all are looking at automation. That's another debate. But it's not quite here. So we're all on the precipice of um, being able to move the industry forward using lots and lots of modern technology. But the, the reality is that we've got to get there. And that's where we're sort of, we've got this sort of gap in, in how, we, how we produce from our farms right now. He's saying seven to ten years before he can use robots. Well, I wish you well. And in just a, you know, just a few days' time now, it's all going to change, and uh, I guess everybody listening to this would really wish you well, if for no other reason than the selfish one of keeping the food on the plate. Nick Otterwell, salad grower in Offham near Maidstone in Kent. Good luck, and thank you for joining me today. Bye-bye. Thanks very much. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Thank you. 
Welcome back. And still with me is Ian Wright from the Food and Drink Federation. Well, you heard uh, you heard Nick in Kent, Ian. What did you think? Well, you could almost touch his frustration, couldn't you? Uh, yeah. It was a very eloquent and heartfelt exposition of the difficulty. And of course, the problem for him is that he's, immigration was the epicentre of the Brexit debate. And the consequence of that is that the government is is understandably at its most sensitive when it's talking about foreign workers. And there was all sorts of different um, information thrown about four years ago when we debated all of these things and since. And so they're very, very careful about anything that makes it look as though they're uh, they're going soft on the whole debate. And I think his problem, um, what I know we found over the last three or four years is that businesses are ha- who, who do what Nick does and, and bring people in and house them and look after them are having to look further and further east for those workers because they're competing for those workers from Romania, Bulgaria and some of the other uh, countries further to the east. They're competing with Poland and Germany and other dynamic economies for those for those people. And those those European economies are easier for Romanians and Bulgarians and others to go and work in because they don't need they won't need any of the uh, settled status or any of that 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 we will need in the UK. And that's a big problem. I thought the other thing that he interestingly said was and, um, and this will be something that will be in a way, I suppose, a dividend of, of this uncertainty is that when they can afford it, they will go into robotics and they will go into much more automation. And he, and he yes. rightly said, you know, that, that, that requires the upskilling of the, of the workforce, but it also requires a capital investment. And the cost of doing that in a low margin business like food, where, as he said, there's consistent downward pressure with Aldi, Lidl, the discounters and Tesco all uh, scrapping in a price war, finding the space to make those kind of investments over a relatively lengthy period is going to be very difficult for for people like Nick. One thing that's going to happen in just a few days' time is that our participation in the European Union's common agricultural policy will come to an end. Uh, The government, I think, have said, well, whatever a farmer was picking up through that, they will match it and meet it. Um, do you see that working? Well, I, 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 as you know, don't speak for the farming community, but they're our biggest supplier. So I detect a huge amount of, of nervousness. And the government made a big announcement this week. Uh, George Eustace made a big speech about the way in which, and this has been the direction of travel for some time, the way in which uh, the subs- farm subsidies are going to move away from subsidies from production for production, incentivising production, to subsidies for caring for the land and the environment. And so we're now going to see that in action. You know, we all take those wonderful countryside views and walks for granted. And our green and pleasant land is so often there because of the farmer. So we're off on our tour now to the Brecon Beacons National Park in Wales, to the village of Tallybont on the Usk, a village where... Glasnant Morgan and his wife Linda farm some 400 acres, raising beef and sheep on a hill farm. Welcome to the programme, Glasnant. Thank you very much. Just paint a picture for us all of your farm. It sounds like a beautiful part of the world. 
It is. As you said, we are farming in the Brecon Beacons National Park, where we have our own restrictions. But of course, you can't tell the difference from being outside the park to being within the park. It's um, it's a hill farm. Um, we've got a hill allocation of about 600 acres. Some cattle are turned up there in the summer to graze, and they're healthy up there, calving up there without mastitis. How many animals do you have? There's about a thousand sheep here and about 45 suckler cows. And, and you've diversified a bit out of that as well, haven't you? Because as I was, uh, we were both hearing Ian saying that uh, uh, farmers have now got their um, environmental targets as well. And you're, you're moving into other matters as well, aren't you? Yes. I've always been a tree hugger, so I'm always <laughs> planting a few trees, whether it be with a grant or without a grant. But uh, some years ago, we put in a hydro on the, on the farm, and um, you've got to jump through hoops to do that. And um, that's that's to get hydroelectric power, is it? That's right, yes. Yeah. Where all, all what we produce goes into the grid. Yes. And, and you're doing solar? You're doing biomass? Uh, well, well, the bio... You can call it biomass, but it's a heating system for my son's house and my house that uh, is joined anyway. So we burn wood off the farm, um, so that that's in an outside shed, and it heats the two houses. Uh, with the winter storms, there's always branches coming down, and last year we lost several very mature oak trees, so there's always an abundance of firewood in this farm. Firewood. Yeah, it's all going to change in just a few days' time. I appreciate that because it's a devolved matter, the Welsh government is going to spend the money and it's, the decision's going to be made in Cardiff, not in London, which yeah, I, I, I guess puts you at a bit of a disadvantage in as much as uh, when you read in newspapers and on radio and television about what the UK government are going to do. Of course, it's what Cardiff's going to do as far as you receiving money's concerned. But the whole idea of moving away from grants from brussels to grants from cardiff do you do you look at that with confidence or are you worried i am worried are you waiting the trepidation really because um, for next year's budget uh, the welsh government have, have already reduced our budget by 97 million which is a, a fall of nearly 29 percent on our allocation before so uh, and incidentally, when the basic payment came out, 15% was taken from our basic pay into the Rural Development Fund pot. One concern I have, I guess, is in, in the optics of all of this, is that um, uh, the Scottish devolved um, uh, government and the Welsh devolved government can both, in a way, blame London when London isn't going to be responsible for actually spending the money and the farmer has to compete with health and education and everything else that he doesn't have to do at the moment because of course he used to get from brussels so yes. so you need a you need a big loud voice in cardiff to shout loudest don't you yes it's it's very difficult when other other people are needing money as well i understand that but uh, what you've got to remember for every pound a farmer spends by the time it's passed through the next company and the next company that pound has made seven pound. Yeah. Uh, so really, farmers uh, are a good investment. Yeah. They will put money into the local economy. So if, uh, if, if the Welsh government give you a pound, uh, they will get seven pounds of what I would call value for yes. society. And, and therefore, out of that seven pounds, they'll get it back 
and some, not just in employment, but in tax revenue, of course. Yeah. So, so if anybody, if any small business, if anybody's listening to this from Wales, get on, or indeed from Scotland, get on to those uh, members of the Welsh Assembly, members of the Scottish Parliament, and make sure they understand that this is a devolved matter. This is not a London issue. And, and, and could I, could I just? Um, just get a feel for how financially it will change in a few days time because the check from brussels stops mm. the check from wales is yet to be decided how much so you know in january uh, where's your money going to come from well as you know at the moment farming is has got an all-time high borrowing so people have invested money to um, to be more efficient, etc. Fortunately, I've paid off my mortgage, and I I haven't got that problem. So we we are very fortunate that we can ride the troughs that are to come. Where do you see hill farming in? Let's pick it. Let's say ten years' time. Well, well, I hope we won't be like the uh, Turani sketch, where you see a, a couple of farmers in the smocks talking by a gate and chewing a piece of straw. I hope it won't come to that. But um, obviously, um, uh, we have to work more for the public good, as they call it, and earn brownie points. And um, I have put a few ideas forward myself. In Every farmer possibly should uh, grow, say, half a percent of his acreage in a bird mix to... Um, have uh, plenty of food for the birds over winter. Can I just thank you, Glasnant? And you've given me some good time this morning and some good thoughts and food for thought, I guess, for everybody listening. And I wish you well. I wish you well with uh, Cardiff. I wish you well with London. But more particularly, I wish you well on your uh, your lovely farm in, in the Brecon National Park. Thanks thank very you so much. much My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, Ian, what do you think? Well, there's a bit of a theme developing here, isn't there? For all of the contributors we've heard from are nervous about what's to come. That's not just because it's changed, but it's because of the unknown. And what I thought Glasnett was saying, which was really interesting, was that he wasn't resisting the move to environmental priority, but he has a farm that where basically you can only farm sheep uh, because it's upland. And so he has his business is more or less dictated by the geographical surroundings. I mean, in a way, that's very elemental. It's it's almost primeval, isn't it, that that you do something that is dictated by the land and the weather. Um, And it's a great it's a great connection with uh, with what what our planet is all about. And he is someone who clearly cares for it. But you have to say, He's he's in he's got a difficulty, and as you rightly said, there is this contradiction between uh, the UK government and the devolved assemblies. And of course, the devolved administrations are much closer to the ground. They're much they're much more concerned with local, and they do reflect Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, the much more agricultural, rural um, uh, composition of those countries, of those nations of the United Kingdom. Yeah, but they're not. I, bet, always, I, tell, I tell you what. I, I tell you what, Ian, I bet, I, bet, I bet you that if it goes well, they'll take the credit. And if it goes badly, they'll blame London. I can see uh, that. I should. Well, I, who, who knows, Digby? But I think we both know what normally happens. 
Um, <laughs> I, mean, I do think I do actually think that the Welsh government. I, I know Leslie Griffiths, who's the Welsh farming minister, very well, and she's a really able politician with a real care for her community, and she comes from rural Wales, so so she does she does know about this stuff. But I do think. I do think it again. What we're what we're hearing from each of our contributors is real passion for their product, real commitment to their communities and to serving uh, shoppers and customers, but real bother about what is to come and whether the way in which it's being implemented is is sensible or uh, and it's been properly thought through. This is Digby Jones preparing for Brexit here on Times Radio. And so now we're off to the Yorkshire coast. We're going to Whitby, close to Scarborough in North Yorkshire, and to Andrew Locker. Locker's Trawlers is a family-run fishing company based in Whitby, and the Locker's family are fishermen. They have three trawlers. They fish in both the UK and Norwegian waters, mainly out of Peterhead up in Scotland where they land their catch. And Andrew joins me now. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Digby. Hi, thanks for joining me. Uh, tell me, what, what do you catch? Uh, we catch the demersal species, which is uh, cod, haddock, whiting, seth, pollock, and that's that's our main catches. But as we want a mixed fishery, so we, we catch whatever comes up in the nets, really. And the catch, when you have it, you sell it in Peterhead and off it goes. And how much of that goes to the EU, do you know? Um, most of our stuff is sold for consumption within the UK, but the few species what we've found that we catch more of um, in, in the North Sea now, such as Seth and, uh, and Hake, that goes across to the EU. Um, yeah. So I'd say, yeah. I'd say maybe 20% of what we catch goes to the EU. And, and on the 1st of January, it all changes. The common fishing policy comes to an end. And, and what do you think the 1st of January looks like for you? The 1st of January at this minute in time is um, we, we don't know what that's going to look like. As, as, as you know, the negotiations are, are still ongoing. Um, every, every day we, we hear that they're coming to a head and there's going to be some kind of deal or, or no deal. It depends which uh, publication you read or, or listen to. Um, so we don't really know what the 1st of January brings for us. We, we sat here at uh, the, the first week in December with an un, uncertain future. Yeah, and, and and you've got, what, is it three, three, four trawlers? Three and one on the way? Uh, we've got three trawlers, and we're just currently in, in the process of, of planning a, a four. Oh, that probably will replace one of the other ones. We all hear about these alarmist stories about how French trawlers can catch a lot more in our uh, waters than you can. I mean, that's right, is it? That's that's absolutely correct. For the last forty years, we've seen the the UK fishing fishing fleet dwindle, and other other EU coastal communities. I wouldn't say flourish, but definitely invest more strategically um, in a resource that they've got a better share of, at the detriment of the UK fleet. And and so, if if on the first of January the a deal was done, because it's so in everybody's minds. I mean, it's the one thing everybody talks about. And if a deal was done of any sort, it would decrease the French presence and increase British presence. I guess that's right. As an independent coastal state, which we will be on the 1st of January, we have control over our coastline up to 200 miles or the median line, whichever whichever comes first. Um, so we have the rules, we can set the rules and access requirements to those waters and they're, the most, they're, they're among the most lucrative waters globally 
Um, and it's an absolute travesty that as a coastal state, we don't actually have that right. So by, by becoming an independent coastal state, we will automatically gain that back. And we will, first of all, put the UK industry at the forefront of our thinking. But we're not actually saying that nobody else can get access to them waters, but the access to them waters is on our terms. And, and that's a bit like Norway, I guess. Because that's exactly what Norway's done, isn't it? And it's built its industry. That's exactly what Norway's done. uh, Norway's done that for 40 years now. Um, We rely every year on a... a, It it used to be an EU-Norway agreement. What we're looking at now is a UK-Norway agreement to get access to Norwegian waters. And by... To, to do that, we have to sit down at the table, negotiate with Norway, and and if we can get a deal, we get the access. If we don't get a deal, we don't get no access. And I think in my gen, in, in my lifetime, we've had three occasions where we haven't actually got the deal with Norway over the line for the 1st of January. So we've gone into third and fourth and fifth round talks with Norway to get that deal across the line. But we've always got there in the end through, through dialogue and mutual respect of each other's industries. But no, no deal is no access. Yeah. So, so the the deal with Norway um, moves on January the first to a, a a bilateral one between Britain and Norway, as opposed to what happens with Europe. And and is that renegotiated every twelve months? Well, this is what we're actually discussing, and and we've asked them questions at a UK level, and all we get told is we aren't sure on on the negotiations, what is going on now. But the framework is for annual negotiations with Norway, um, and based on on the sort of EU-Norway role. Um, But we aren't 100% sure on on that just yet. So what January the 1st looks like is whatever is going to happen... If there was no deal at all, then uh, in just a few weeks' time, uh, we are going to have our sovereign waters with no French or Belgian or Dutch or Spanish trawler in them, and then separately a deal with Norway of some sort that would allow us into Norway and Norway into us. Is that about right? That's, that sums it up about right, yeah, and, and we as a, as a UK fishing industry, we don't necessarily have to be worried about that. Norway's already come to the table and said they're, they're ready to talk to the UK. They fully respect the UK as an independent coastal state. So if we do have a no deal from a catching sector, from the catching sector of the fishing industry, we don't have to be really worried about that. We get our waters, which are the, some of the most lucrative in the world. Um, we've got an industry that can fish it sustainably, um, we don't have to worry about that. What what we do have to be concerned about is the trade deal. But I think naturally economics will prevail because the EU want our product as much as we want to send it to them. Yeah, you know, yeah. So it's fair to say, isn't it, that, that Michel Barnier, in charge of the negotiations for the EU, could just be presiding over the destruction of the French fishing fleet. And if a sort of deal was staggered in over a period of time, you know, if, if, I don't know if they said we'll, we'll increase the British share and decrease the French share over I don't know, three years or something, it, it, would you grind your teeth and get on with it and think it could have been better? Or do you see that that would be a, a, a good solution? When, when we were campaigning for Brexit, we were told that we would get we will get our waters back. We'll get our fisheries back to be able to manage and control who has access to our waters from day one. So anything less will be judged on the merits that it, that it 
gives to the industry. You know, we, we were told we would get that back. No three, four, five-year transition period. We've already had four years, and we're no yeah. further ahead now than what yeah. we were four years ago. I so the industry was promised its waters back, and that's what we that's what we're up. That's for. what you're after. And and what what one thing do you as an industry do you need to do? Forget forget you know the the deal. I don't mean that at all. But in terms of really maximising the productivity of the the en- increased catch you're going to have and 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 getting it landed and getting it to market. Where do you see improvement? Where could we actually be doing it as an industry better than we do today? What What's something that we could actually concentrate on doing better? That's a, that's a very good question. Um, we already harvest our waters in a sustainable manner. Um, we abide by the closed areas that come in for spawning aggregations and things like that. Um, we put in real-time closures, areas where we don't go. There's abundance of certain stocks that we don't want to catch. Um, so I think by managing our own waters after the 1st of January, we, we could possibly do that better because we can't necessarily keep an eye on the, U, the EU fleet that come into our waters to adhere by the rules and regulations that we have. So if we, we get a better management of our own fisheries, we, we can manage our waters um, in a more professional manner well i can tell you andrew this has been fascinating um i i had a, a very nice piece of haddock last night and uh, as i was eating it i thought tomorrow morning i'm going to be talking to the man who might just have caught this so uh, <laughs> i just want to say thank you thank you for your time and really really good luck next year and and really you know make the most of it just not just for lockers which has been around for many years but also for the country and uh, well done and thanks very much indeed Thank you very much. Ian Wright from the Food and Drink Federation is still with me. Uh, Ian, that was a a passionate uh, summary of where fishing is and an expectation that uh, they are going to have their promises, the promises fulfilled that they can put fish on the plate, fished in sovereign waters. Uh, Do do you think uh, his optimism is misplaced? Well, I, I hope it isn't. Uh, I think that fish and fishing is is right at the centre. It's the fulcrum of the last bit of the negotiation. Um, and the government does seem very committed to not selling out uh, fishermen. Uh, they seem to have made that sort of shibboleth uh, in these negotiations. I, mean, I think it is just worth noting that, that the in the UK fishing industry, 85% of the fish that we catch in uh, in UK waters is actually exported and 85% of the fish we eat is actually imported from other waters. So it's a fantastic example of international trade. And it's also the case that, that as we get, this will be one of the changes which comes up, as we get control of our waters, the, the fish on the plate of uh, the UK shopper will probably change a bit because there'll be, there'll be more access to those things which Andrew has been catching. And, um, I mean, I think what, what we see from all of our contributors today, I mean, first of all, they're all very close to their product. You know, these are people who are intimately involved uh, with, their, with what they do, with the areas that they work. They work with people they've worked with often for years. They're very much at the heart of the community. This is not a big food story. This is a local food story. 
Yes, yes, good point. Um, you you do a regular surveys of your members, and one has uh, uh, survey results have come out this week. Uh, I when I was reading it, I, I was thinking people look a bit more prepared than I thought they were. Is that right? Yeah, I think many many businesses have done the preparation that they can. Uh, I think it, they're better prepared. Would be my guess for EU. UK trade than for Northern Ireland, and that's partly because there's been a much longer focus on the question of trading with the EU. And we've been round this course three times last year when we had the aborted EU exits in March, April, and December. So lots of businesses have prepared for those, and and have actually incidentally factored those preparations into the way they've dealt with COVID nineteen this year. But um, the bit that, that the area that's really come up the agenda very fast over the last few months, and and is of great concern, and we've heard it in this program, is Northern Ireland because there is such uncertainty. So right now, I guess about half our our members are really uh, are really concerned that they won't be ready uh, in total, and a number of them are really you know really bothered about the last details that we're going to go and see, we're going to see come out of the deal if and when it happens. And everybody yeah. is bothered about the implications of a no deal exit and the, and the potential imposition of tariffs, because that adds just another layer of complexity and another layer of cost. Yes. It, it, generally, in the sector that you represent, um, it is so, as you were just saying, it is so global in so many ways not just earning money and selling stuff, but for the climate and the responsibility for to the environment. What over the coming two or three years, this brave new dawn of Britain sailing her ship in a in in a wider wider ocean. Uh, what is outstanding in the sector? What could what what could we be doing better in the sector to make sure that? everybody from a hill farmer in Wales to a fisherman to a salad grower to a cheesemaker that they that they could actually look forward to a more successful future well I think there are three things that I would talk about one is we could uh, we could try and guarantee the labor uh, force now I know people think that there is a there is going to be a dividend if, if that's the right word from COVID, that that we will be able, those people who have been displaced uh, very sadly by the uh, incursions into hospitality, for example, will be able to transfer into other jobs. That doesn't seem to have happened through the last nine months, uh, and we heard that from Nick in uh, in Kent that he still has difficulty getting workers in to do the work and and to skill them up to do the work. So the first thing the government could do is is be much more. Uh, concrete and forward-looking on the labour force. The second area which is linked to that is that they could begin to think about how you make funds available for automation uh, because the cost of borrowing that money over such a long period is going to be a a really big weight around all these food producers. And if they can come up with some kind of scheme that would would at least make access to finance easier, then I and encourage those professionals in the finance and fintech sector to make financing available at a relatively micro level, that will be that will help uh, both Nick and probably Caroline in the way that that they produce their products. And then the final thing I think is to is 
we're going to be an international trading nation again. We're going to be looking to the rest of the world. There are some incredibly exciting possibilities in Asia, particularly, and perhaps in Latin America and Africa. But in order to do that, we need a proper, really serious export promotion uh, vehicle for the UK. We spend very little on this as the UK, and we're 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 really really outgunned, even by the Republic of Ireland with its brilliant. Uh, export promotion body. So we, we've talked to government about this. We're in the middle of a discussion about what we could do. And I think if you did those three things, preparing people for what is to come, not just dealing with the, the potential chaos of the next few weeks, I think those would be really sensible long-term moves, which would benefit everybody across the food supply chain. Do you know, I wish I could bottle that and send it as a package to every MP and every civil servant. I really do. I th- that, that's, that's excellent stuff. Um, I always like to leave uh, my listeners with a, uh, a signpost. Um, so, Ian, uh, where can a business listening to this thinking, well, I, I, I need some help. I need to know where I go to for help in the short term about what's happening coming down the pipe in a few days, in the long term about all that you just said. Where can they go for help, Ian? Well, they can go to gov.uk where there's loads of information and it's relatively well organised. They can go to something called the EU Exit Food Hub, which is an industry initiative in which we're involved and other trade associations are involved, which has lots of information and guidance on it and is being updated almost hourly. Or they can come to their their local their sector trade association. So people like us at the FDF, we're very we're all very easy to find on the internet these days. And then finally, of course, there is always the great network of local chambers of commerce who are very good at doing this. And even if they don't know, they will. In the immortal words of the AA of the past, they'll know a man or a person who can. Ian Wright, Chief Executive of the Food and Drink Federation, being with me. Uh, over the journey round our green and pleasant land thank you for your time Ian and good luck in the next few days well that's all for today many thanks to all my guests now we've heard about a number of big issues that are still outstanding for this important sector so we've invited a government minister to join us on next week's programme and we'll put those concerns to him or her then so we're back in the next and final episode to bring together all the themes that we've covered over the past five weeks and in the meantime this is Digby Jones preparing for Brexit here on Times Radio bye bye sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM.